welcome to talc teaching and learning consultation skills this is the talc talks podcast helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills to get better outcomes and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction This podcast is part of a series where we're talking about why and how consultation skills promote better and safer care, focusing on each module in turn. Effective consultation skills have been repeatedly shown to contribute to safer, more accurate and more patient-centred interactions. Clinicians who consult skillfully make fewer errors and they also deliver care of better quality which in turn means they conform to the expectations of regulatory bodies such as the GMC or the NMC. So in each of these, how do these consultation skills promote better and safer care chapters, there are two examples. One is of a patient with a bad sore throat, and the second is a patient who says, I would like some sleeping pills. These very common scenarios need accurate clinical assessment and an effective therapeutic relationship must also be created for the right care to be offered in line with each patient's specific needs. However, such consultations can run into problems if the right consultation skills are not used. This could include conflicts, for example, if the clinician and the patient disagree about the treatment or the investigations. Safety incidents can arise if important clinical information is missed because of poor information gathering skills. Sometimes good treatment plans go wrong or fail completely if the patient's own point of view and their own needs are not properly understood because this means patients don't carry out plans. In some worst case scenarios, clinicians can be subject to complaints if things go wrong or if the patient is unhappy with how the consultation went. Many of these adverse things can be completely prevented if the right skills are used in the right way at the right time. Every part of the consultation offers opportunities for curiosity and inquiry using effective listening skills to improve the information available to the clinician and that helps to ensure that care is fully personalised to the needs of the individual patient. By exploring these two clinical situations in detail, each chapter will demonstrate the benefits of the relevant skills very clearly. So why have we chosen really bad sore throat and sleeping pills as clinical scenarios. Let's think about a really bad sore throat first. There's really no such thing as a sore throat. There's always a patient present who has the sore throat and for them the sore throat is only one aspect of their whole problem. Clinicians need to be able to maintain an open mind about what any particular patient's sore throat is really all about and avoid jumping to conclusions early on. Many clinicians start by thinking a sore throat is a straightforward situation and they focus on asking themselves questions like, is this viral or bacterial? Shall I give antibiotics or shall we not give antibiotics? This internal focus can mean important aspects of the patient's story are missed. However, thinking about the sore throat beforehand and thinking about the skills that are needed can help the clinician make a safer and more accurate assessment and plan. Thinking about the scenario when somebody says, can I have some sleeping tablets, is also quite similar. 
patients who are disturbed, stressed or distressed, may sometimes introduce their quite complicated problem with a seemingly simple request such as, can I have some sleeping tablets? Just as there is no such thing as a sore throat, there's no single answer to the question of whether a patient will benefit from sleeping tablets. Successful and safe consulting in this situation means that a clinician must be able to use the generalist skill of placing the patient's problem within their own specific context. However, as most sleeping tablets have a potential for addiction, and they might not even improve sleep very much, many clinicians have a core attitude that sleeping tablets are not helpful. Thus, they may mentally answer the patient's closed question of, can I have some sleeping tablets, with a kind of mental immediate, no, you can't. Coming to the consultation with a fixed view like this can make clinicians less curious about the full story that they need to hear from the patient and can affect the accuracy of the treatment plan. We're now going to talk about the skills that specifically relate to TALC Module 2, which is called Skills for Building Effective Relationships. We're going to think about ways in which building effective relationships make for much better quality of care. So, Anne, have you got a case of a really bad sore throat that might illustrate this? Yes, I have. This is a case brought to me from one of our trainees, and it's about Miriam. So Miriam's 18, and she rarely comes to the practice, and a note's received from an appointment saying, really bad sore throat, very keen to be seen in person, as she wants a rash looking at too. So Miriam attends and she tells the clinician that her throat's been rather sore and she has a rash on her arm. And when asked if she was planning to discuss anything else today, she hesitates and pauses and then says, well, no, I mean, not really. The clinician continues their assessment of the throat and the rash without picking up on that strong hint that there might be something else. Miriam is quiet and not particularly forthcoming, but she denies any other respiratory symptoms at all and she's been continuing to go to college she rolls up her sleeve and she shows a really innocuous looking small, pale, flat mole. Examination of the respiratory system and the throat are then normal and she's got no lymph nodes. So the clinician simply suggests regular paracetamol and suggests a review if things don't get better or if they get worse. Well, clinically, that sounds pretty reasonable. She doesn't sound particularly unwell and, and she also doesn't particularly sound like she needs antibiotics or anything more interventionist. So... How did this come to be a problem, this straightforward consultation? Well, around three months later, Miriam then consulted a different clinician, and this time in really great distress, actually. She was pregnant um, and terrified that her really strict parents would discover that she'd had a boyfriend at all and that they had had sex. Oh. And she was totally distraught, and she doesn't know whether to have a termination. During that conversation, which was supportive and empathic, she was able to share that she feels really bad. She's even felt so bad that she's contemplated killing herself because she's been very distressed about the decisions she has to make and also she doesn't want to face her angry parents. That sounds quite tricky, actually, because now uh, Miriam's really in a pickle, isn't she? Yeah. Um, do, you, do you think that there were things that the cl first clinician missed out that could have prevented things ending up in, in such a mess? Well, absolutely. I think that... I mean, firstly, the first clinician, I mean, they did prepare carefully for the consultation. They had a look into Miriam's notes, but they took Miriam's symptoms at face value. And they really made very little effort to build rapport or develop a relationship. Doing that in that 
initial consultation just may have enabled Miriam to confide her wish to obtain contraception and neither did the clinician inquire about Miriam's thoughts or her concerns or really her hopes for the outcome of that consultation. Effective ways to discover a patient's own perspective on things is covered in TALC Module 3, Skills for Effective Information Gathering. Right, so it, it sounds like preparation was enough, but building the relationship might have enabled Miriam to perhaps open up about some things she was embarrassed to mention straight away. I think that's the gist of what you're saying, isn't it? Yeah, when we think about that first consultation, there were some hints and clues, that hesitation of uh, Miriam's demeanour. There were a number of things which a bit of deeper inquiry and an open mind might have revealed. Because, mm. I mean, I think particularly the clinician could show some empathy. Like when she said, oh, I mean, no, not really, maybe. Yeah. Instead of just saying, okay, fine, that's nothing then, they could have said something which showed an empathic understanding, like you seem a bit unsure about yeah. whether to bring something else up. And, you know, we're here today to discuss all your concerns or something like that. And that relationship building skill might have helped. Yeah. Can you tell us any other ways to improve consultation skills in building relationships? What kind of things would help? So available is the TALC Module 2. There's videos and podcasts available and some written material. Discussing cases like this with your clinical supervisor or mentor can be really helpful. Many clinicians will have, have had problems that they've encountered in similar situations to discuss and reflect upon. Perhaps a patient only revealed something important or embarrassing if you pick up on those clues early on. And if actually when effort is made to build a rapport, then you know what came out later on in that discussion. I think a lot of clinicians um, would find that quite um, a recognisable situation, that somebody comes in with one thing and then when they've built up a bit of a relationship with you and they feel like you're getting on, they then say, well, there was this other thing or what I'm really worried about or something, often which can be clinically really important as well. It's often not just that they're, you know, they might be embarrassed about something which actually is clinically very important, like rectal bleeding or mm. something like that, which to doctors is quite normal, to most clinicians is quite normal, but sometimes patients don't want to talk about things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think subtly mirroring Someone's demeanour, this quiet tone of voice and limited eye contact helps to build some rapport. And being gentle, if you pick up on these things, using a kind tone of voice and using empathy, and actually reflecting that somebody seems a bit unsure, uh, and using encouraging phrases like go on, can facilitate those sort of discussions about what really was on Miriam's mind. Mm. What, what came out when you, you mentioned the second consultation was a, a bit a warmer and kinder one, what, what came out in that discussion then? So Miriam was able, I mean, she was able to tell us how she really liked her boyfriend very much and she had these very strict parents and she felt that they would really go mad if they found out about this relationship. And she thought that her relationship was progressing, that she might end up having sex soon and she wondered if she could go on some contraception, which was really mature and sensible thoughts about her own relationship. And the parents had been okay about her coming to the GP, but she'd, she'd really said she'd found it hard to suggest going to a family planning clinic or elsewhere so she'd, she'd use this sore throat as a sort of ticket of admission to come and discuss this um, and an excuse to get an appointment with the, with the doctor. Mm. So having that kind of on the face of it fairly low-key reason for seeing the doctor actually uh, uh, it kind of was a cover-up for something quite important because had she got contraception at that point 
she wouldn't have got pregnant probably but it sounds like there were other opportunities that could have been lost because there was an opportunity there to talk about good sexual health the use of condoms and even to make sure that Miriam is fully consenting to the sexual relationship because she's still quite young isn't she yeah uh, where she's ended up very distressed and even contemplating taking her own life which seems a bit sad really yeah so have you got any thoughts about the kind of approach to learning that people could use to improve their relationship building skills? Yeah, there's a list of learning methods in module two, which will help to hone your skills in developing and deepening rapport and in identifying the clues and hints about patients' feelings. Name, as we said, naming such feelings in an empathic way and being sensitive to these pauses and hesitations means that patients are just much more likely to engage and tell us the clinicians the whole story I think that's right finding out what's really on someone's mind makes the consultation run more smoothly and it does mean it's focused on the right issues somebody could have spent like two minutes on the throat and the rash and spent the most of the part of the consultation on what was really really mattering for Miriam at the time and actually in a way that saves time because she might not have even needed the second consultation might she if she'd got efficient contraception and whichever way she decides about the pregnancy she's going to need a referral somewhere either for a termination or for antenatal care and that generates in a sense more work for everybody um, and for Miriam it's a disaster and a pregnancy could have been postponed until she felt ready to be pregnant at whatever point in her life was the right time for that so I think this small problem uh, is a way is a place where relationship building can really often get to the heart of things. So Avril tell me about a case that involves a request for some sleeping tablets. Okay well, well this is one that came up when I was watching a recording with a clinician and uh, this clinician was seeing a patient called Kim who's 48 and the note just said she wants some sleeping tablets there was nothing much of note in her previous medical records. Um, but during the conversation, she said, my friend says I should just get some sleeping tablets to tide me over. Uh, and it came out that Kim's husband had suddenly keeled over at work three days before and died suddenly, probably from a heart attack. Now, the clinician concerned did note this bereavement and actually felt sorry for Kim and said, I'm sorry for your loss. Um, but they felt it would be a bit unprofessional to say much more and that they were worried that they didn't have any sort of so-called counselling skills and they also felt they didn't know how to make it any better so they didn't talk about the bereavement anymore. Um, they said that they felt that benzodiazepines aren't that helpful in grief and they tried to put Kim off taking any pills and just said well I don't think any pills is going to help and then on the video what you see is that Kim, who's been sitting tensely and twisting a hanky, gets more and more distraught and then jumps to her feet and says, I'll just go then. And she rushes out of the room in tears. Now, I don't think anybody feels that's an ideal outcome. And, and the clinician I was talking to felt that it didn't go well, but they didn't really know what they should have done instead. So I, I don't know what you think about that. Mm. So, yeah, so unsatisfactory, really, all round. Um... I suppose I was thinking about what may have happened next. I suppose it's worth speculating what could have happened to Kim next. In the first place, she might simply have sought another appointment, maybe with, maybe with a different colleague. But that's not ideal, is it? As it just increases pressure on the system, which everyone's already really busy, aren't they? So it's, I suppose it's a thought that Kim might have sought some help elsewhere. 
for example, from an organisation like Cruise that assists people when they're bereaved. But it, it sort of worries me that Kim might conclude that it's really not acceptable to talk about grief or, it's, or there's no professionals that are there to help, that really her emotional upset isn't something to bother people with. And I worry that maybe she may have taken refuge in something else, had to become low in a mood, sink into a lower state, take to alcohol or even become depressed. She might even become angry and it might lead to a complaint that she really felt a care was substandard. Yeah, I can see there's, although we don't really know what happened to Kim, there's quite a few potentially not ideal outcomes here, not, not least work for other people. And it would be good to be able to solve this kind of thing within one consultation. Yeah, absolutely. And the clinician is offering a lot of skills uh, and, they, and they, I'm sure they felt you know, they were doing their best. And this idea that they didn't feel they had any specific counselling skills could lead them to think a bit more in detail about what that, how that needs to develop. So could you give us some thoughts, Avril, about where they could go to develop skills and what they could do? Yeah, I, I think really, rather than trying to be um, overambitious and think this requires some kind of detailed counselling or grief counselling skills... I think it's good to start with the basic skills of building an effective relationship because it's really through relationships that people get healing in this kind of situation. And these are discussed in detail in TALC module two, skills for building effective relationships. There's written materials there, podcasts, videos, and so on. And it's worth discussing these kind of situations with a clinical supervisor or a mentor. What would they do in this kind of situation? I'm thinking about the relationship building skills that help when listening to patients who've been bereaved. I think that this could be about encouraging somebody to talk, using encouraging phrases like go on, using a kindly and empathic tone, also allowing some silence actually, because sometimes people cry and people feel that that's something you have to stop. Mm. Whereas being able to cry in the presence of a supportive and kind person can be strangely soothing for people, actually. Um, and I think Kim would then go on to explain that the death of her husband was unexpected, that she's devastated. Now, we were able to actually video the follow-up here. And in this situation, the clinician allowed a pause and then um, feeds back both the facts and the feelings in a, in a sort of brief summary, saying this was very hard because it's so sudden and you weren't prepared for this. And Kim went on to say, we were so happy together. Now he's gone, I'm alone in the world. Now, of course, the, the first thing might be to say some sort of generic statement like, I understand this is hard for you. But you could pretty much say that to anybody who's in a difficult situation. Whereas in the follow-up video, the clinician was able to make more nuanced empathic comments that actually built on Kim and her particular situation, building on the relationship they've got with Kim as an individual. So they said, it sounds like for you, feeling totally alone is almost the hardest thing. And that showed both active listening, feeding back to Kim what she'd said, and empathy, but also tentative enough that Kim could make a correction. And she did go on to say, well, being alone will be hard, but the worst is that it happened so quickly because I couldn't say goodbye. So enabling people to express their feelings using active listening skills and naming feelings empathically is, is rather comforting and it builds that relationship. You know, so often people just need a good listening to rather than something to be fixed. So how do you 
think people can develop these skills and what kind of learning methods would help? So the skill of getting used to that idea of naming feelings in an empathic way and being sensitive to pauses and hesitations and actually allowing pauses. Often I think clinicians are quite frightened of silences and we seek to fill them but actually sometimes a silence is what's needed and a pause that in, a, in that situation means that a patient is actually more likely to tell clinicians the whole story. Mm. So using your own recordings of consultation to identify times when patients express feelings can be a really helpful method in terms of identifying where their skills are needed and then practicing naming feelings in an empathic way and getting feedback on these consultations can improve outcomes also. This sounds a bit like uh, some of the skills which are in TALP module 5-6, which is about recognising feelings, accepting and sort of validating them, like when the clinician said, you know, feeling totally alone is the hardest thing. That's kind of recognising it and accepting it, isn't it? Yeah, and in TALP module 8, silence is golden, we reflect on the way that pauses and silences can be really helpful empathising with Kim and naming her feelings does not mean that the clinician takes responsibility for fixing her problems or for making Kim feel fine again. Her bereavement, it's new and it's raw and it may take a long time for her to come to terms with what's happened. After all, death and loss and grief are normal parts of life and will happen to everyone. That's absolutely true. And um, thinking about those non-verbal skills around silence, for example, or picking up non-verbal signs of uh, how somebody's feeling, that, that's also covered in Module 11 and Module 4. So there are quite a lot of ways in which building a relationship can be therapeutic in its own right and also can help people talk about what's really important to them, which makes the consultation more accurate in the end. Thanks, Anne. Thanks, Adam. This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators, making training available to all.